Oh Lord, our God, we thank you that the things which happened to your people in days of old, you have put them in the Holy Bible so that we may learn from the experience. The prophets and the holy men and women of God, they did not suffer in vain. Oh, we can still learn from their lives of faith and obedience. So Lord, we pray that you may bless us as we open up your word in Jeremiah chapter 32. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now let us turn back to the prophet Jeremiah chapter 32. Let me read to you verses 6 to 7. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shulam, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anaphoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Dear friends, I find it to be somewhat ironic and amusing that I should preach to you on the subject of buying an investment property. Uh, of all men, <laughs> I should preach to you on this subject. Uh, but this message in Jeremiah 32 has been in my heart for a long while. Uh, and I do feel that we have so much to learn. Uh, I'm not trying to be trendy, having this uh, uh, sermon title, Buying an Investment Property. But here we have, really, the Lord commanding his servant Jeremiah to buy a piece of investment property. It was an investment into the future. Now as we open up chapter 32 of the prophet Jeremiah, I do hope you got the Bible open to that chapter. We see in the first five verses uh, that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying to him that uh, your king Zedekiah, which means righteousness, but he was not righteous, uh, he would be delivered to the Babylonians and your city would be destroyed. And when you look at the dates or the year, it was just about a year before the actual destruction of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was under siege. It was a terrible time. Uh, sword, bloodshed, plague, calamities were coming to them. And then the Lord told Jeremiah, your cousin is coming to see you and offering you to buy his piece of land, a field. And 
You, you see the irony here. God asked Jeremiah, who had no children, who was not even allowed to get married, uh, not because he hasn't come across someone suitable or he decided not to marry, but the Lord told him, you're not allowed to get married. And Jeremiah was not even allowed to attend weddings or funerals. He was not allowed to join in normal social activities. And the Lord asked him to buy a piece of investment property. And then the piece of property was already controlled by the Babylonians. And furthermore, Jeremiah was a prisoner, put in prison as a traitor, because Jeremiah has long been preaching to the people, because of your sins, God's wrath is going to come upon you, and the holy city is to be destroyed, the temple will be burned, houses will be pulled down in poor nations, and Jeremiah, you, in such a time, in such a circumstances, you are commanded to use whatever cash you may have to buy this piece of land. A piece of land that Jeremiah has no access, he couldn't even go to see the land, he was under the Babylonians, and that piece of land has zero market value. I remember years ago, as a very young minister, I visited a very elderly lady and she told me when Japanese submarines were sighted in Sydney Harbour, the real estate in Rose Bay Double Bay dropped significantly. Well, it was, it was true, isn't it? And in those days, if you should buy a property in Rose Bay or Double Bay, now it will be a lot of money. Well, none of us bought a piece of property at that price. Now you understand, God is here precisely telling Jeremiah, you have to use your money to invest into the future. Even though that piece of land was occupied by your enemy, and even though in those circumstances, if you were Jeremiah, you were in that situation, you got some money, what, what would you do? Well, use the cash and put it near your heart, so to say, so that you could use it. Only a few weeks ago, uh, some people in Hong Kong got really in a panic mode and they actually got some silver ready in case they have escaped Hong Kong and uh, they needed to buy air tickets. And they can use those silver to buy air tickets. Uh, it was not needed. Now, you see, the conundrum that Jeremiah was under. 
That's a mid-sermons, isn't it? If you were Jeremiah, and God's command came to you like that, you think, well, this, this, this just is not to my interest. This does not make sense. This is a crazy piece of investment, if you can call that investment. And here Jeremiah was tested concerning his faith in God and his obedience to God's word. Jeremiah the prophet, he had been long in the ministry and he preached to the people about God's justice and holiness. He urged people to repent. He told the people about the judgment to come. And he called people to faith in God. And now, he himself was tested whether he would obey God's command, even though he suddenly doesn't seem to be to his interest. It seems to be a mere waste of money. Would he obey? Would he? Well, let us see. In verse 8, we are told, after God told him that his cousin would come to offer him this piece of land to buy, it happened just like that. His cousin came to him and said, well, cousin Jeremiah, I got this piece of field up for sale, and you are the person who should buy it. And we are told in verse 8, Jeremiah said, then I knew this was the word of the Lord. He got God's word to him to start with, and then things happened just as God's word they came to him. So Jeremiah was doubly sure that this is what God wanted him to do. And what did he do? Well, verse 9, he bought a field from his cousin and weighed out to him the purchase price, 17 pieces or shekels of silver. And then verses 15, so verses 10 to 15, we have a very interesting account of property transaction in those days. Uh, this would interest scholars to no end, isn't it? It's so interesting. And uh, this happened some 2,600 years ago in ancient Israel. Uh, Jeremiah signed the deed so he could write. He sealed the deed and there were witnesses. He weighed the money on the scale so there were scales. And then there was a purchase deed and two copies. One copy sealed, another copy open. What fascinating insight into property transaction in those days. It was done properly and there were witnesses, there were the title deed, and uh, there were the prize and scales weighed the prize and then Jeremiah told his uh, assistant, Baruch, the scribe, well, you took these two copies of the purchase deed, the sealed copy and the open copy, and put, it, put them into a clay pot, into an earthen jar, so that they may last many days. Wow! 
So we learned in those days there were two copies of the title deeds, one sealed, another open for inspection. If any doubt, you can open a sealed copy to double check. And Jeremiah had put them into an earthen jar. And they should last many days. Just like the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, at the founding of the modern state of Israel, they found these clay pots accidentally in the cave around the Dead Sea that have survived over 2,000 years. Among them, scrolls of Isaiah, and one scroll, the complete scroll of the prophecy of Isaiah. What if one day we should discover the purchase deed of Jeremiah? Well, it could still happen, isn't it? A dry climate, searing clay pot, it will last for a long, long time, for thousands of years. And then verse 15. There's an explanation. Houses and fields and vineyards shall be purchased again in this land. That's a message. Jeremiah said it. So thus far, we have a command from God to Jeremiah, which was not to his interest, which doesn't make much sense, at least not much sense to uh, Jeremiah's immediate welfare, and we discover that Jeremiah obeyed God's word. So here we learn this very important lesson. Obedience to God's word comes first. Obedience first. And then understanding. Now that does not mean that the Bible teaches us to believe in nonsense. No. The Bible never asks us to believe in nonsense. The Bible asks us to believe in God's specific word. It's not a leap into the dark. It wasn't that Jeremiah did not understand anything at all. No, Jeremiah knew a fair bit about God, actually quite a lot about God, God's character, his deeds. He, he knew a fair bit about what would happen in the future, judgment, uh, and even the return from the exile. He, he, he knew those things. But it was not a complete understanding. He couldn't completely understand the reason for this purchase. He understood something, not fully, but what did he do to God's command? He obeyed. And here we learn faith before understanding. Or I should put it in a better way. It's you believe so that you may understand. Now that order of things is so important. We believe so that and in order that we may know and understand. There are people who say, well, I can't believe 
in the God of the Bible. I can believe in these doctrines because I don't fully understand. If we wait until we fully understand, then we will never believe. But when you and I step out in faith and obedience, then we shall know and understand so much better. And that is very interesting. It's after Jeremiah obeyed God's command that he prayed for understanding. When God's command came to Jeremiah, Jeremiah did not say to God, Lord, I'm not going to do it until you explain everything to me clearly. I can't do it until I fully understand. No, Jeremiah did not do that, but rather he obeyed first and then they sit down to pray to God. And dear friends, the prayer of Jeremiah in chapter 32 is a model prayer. How do you pray? How do you pray? Do you need help in prayer? Do you want to learn how to pray? Are you willing to spend $20, $30 to buy a Christian book teaching you how to pray? I hope so. But friends, there's a quicker way, a sure way. We go to the scriptures to learn how to pray. We learn how to pray by reading and pondering Jeremiah's prayer in chapter 32 of his book more closely. And then of course, there are other parts of the Bible which can teach us how to pray. Now friends here, do you remember that I told you before there are the triple nine about praying in the, in the Old Testament? Nine, nine, nine. There are three chapters, nine. I was asking myself only a few days ago, I've been saying this to the people, but what chapters are there? Do I remember? Well, I work it out. Yes, it's Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. Oh, I have a triple 9. Uh, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. And you can add to that list Jeremiah 32. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's Prayer. Now let us learn from Jeremiah's prayer here tonight. It actually starts with uh, verse uh, 17. Uh, start with verse 17. Look at your Bible. Jeremiah takes a broad perspective. And it begins with what he's sure of. He doesn't go to God and say to God immediately, Lord, it does not make sense, please explain. It wasn't that rude, wasn't that uh, disrespectful of God. Rather, he begins with what he's sure of. He begins with what God's character is like and his saving works in the past. He start with, if you want big terms, some of you like big terms, he start with systematic theology and the history of redemption. But in simple language, he start with what God is like and what God has done. Look at verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, 
He's asking God to pay attention. Remember the behold this morning? He says to God, well, please pay attention. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. Creation. God's almighty power. Let's start with verse 18. Look at it. You show loving kindness. What a precious word here. Has said in Hebrew to thousands, and you will pay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Yes, you're the God whose righteous you would pay people's iniquities. Verse 19 You are great in counsel and mighty in work. For your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of man to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You are the God of judges. You are the God of retribution. We get what we have shown. And then it goes on. Look at verse 24. It's recalling the history of God's people. Yes, our people came into the promised land, took possession of it, verse 23, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you have commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Jeremiah understood the people, his own people, have disobeyed God, and therefore this terrible calamity has fallen upon them. Now, friends, just imagine you, you were in Jerusalem in those days. There was a plague going on. People were dying. And there was a famine. You feel hungry. Terrible time. And verse 24. Lo, it's calling God's attention. The siege months. The Babylonians are now besieging our city. The siege months surrounded our cities, and maybe they were building up taller and taller to run into the city. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And then Jeremiah comes to his question. Verse 25. And yet you have said to me, O Lord God, Buy the field for money and take witnesses. He's asking God, what's the point of this purchase? But he's asking a deeper question. Yes, he sort of knows that this purchase is a promise of restoration and renewal, but under those circumstances, is asking God in trembling faith, is this possible? 
Is it really that fields will be bought in the future and our land will be restored to us? Is it possible? Is it likely? Is restoration really possible? Now you can understand the difficulty with Jeremiah. When you look at that situation, you'll be like if we say to those poor victims in Turkey and Syria, you see all those pictures of collapsed buildings, people pulling out from the rubbles, and it was a mess, worse than a mess. And you tell the people, well, one day, you're going to live in mansions. Every home will be air-conditioned. And you're going to have the best food in the world. You're going to have lobster, and mango, and avocado, and a T-bone steak. Well, the people say to you, don't be so cruel to us. So this is Jeremiah's question. Will this really happen? Is it possible? Is this your sure promise? Now we come to God's answer. Starting at verse 26. Look at it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, you see how this conversation goes on between Jeremiah and the Lord? Jeremiah said to the Lord, Behold, look, Lord! And God's reply said to him, Look, Jeremiah, behold, verse 27, I am the Lord. I'm your covenant God, the God of all flesh. I'm not just your covenant Lord, I'm the God of all human beings, all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too difficult for me? And then, in verses 28 to 35, God reminds Jeremiah again in his answer that judgment will certainly come. He's saying to Jeremiah, make no mistake. Don't have any illusion that somehow the city of Jerusalem will escape from judgment. No, it will not. Look at it. Verse 28. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, another behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans. Verse 29. The Chaldeans will fight against the city. Uh, the Chaldeans who fight against the city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it. Yes, the Babylonians, the Babylonians, Babylonians will burn up the city and the houses on whose roof they have offered incense to Baal and portrait offering to the other gods to provoke me to anger. Imagine that. The people of God, the people of Israel, they on their house top have been offering uh, 
incense and sacrifices to the idols. And God says, those houses are will burn. So the Babylonians. Not just that. In verse 30, because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth, they have provoked me to anger with the work of their hands. Verse 32, yes, because of all the evil of the people, they have provoked me to anger, they have turned their back to me, not their face, they have not listened to me. And verse 34, they set the abomination in the house which is called by my name to defile it. Can you imagine that? In the holy temple of God, the people of Israel have been setting up idols to worship the idols, and God called them abominations. Just imagine it would be like if one Sunday you turn up in church and then you discover. They're all statues in this building. The Buddha, the Goddess of Mercy, and other ugly idols, they're all here. And you discover that the congregation are worshipping these idols. What are you say? Are oh, you say that that can't happen in a Christian church? Don't be so sure. There are many so-called Christian churches which got idols in their buildings. Or oh, you say, well, that only happened in certain other denominations, but even in so-called Protestant churches, I've seen at least one photograph in a historic Protestant church that there was a Buddhist service. Hundreds of monks worshiping the Buddha, and the church welcomed them. It was something like this and worse that the people of Israel were doing. And verse 35, not just that. And they built the, the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Enon, Enon, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination. You know what the people of God did? They not only have high places to worship the Baal, they not only set up idols within the temple, they burn their own children to idols, to Molech. Molech is somewhat like the Hebrew word Melech, king. They worship their idols as their king and they burn their children. You know, friends, what happened? When people turn away from the true and living God and they worship idols, it will lead to not just idolatry, but immorality and cruelty to the children. Look at over the world, especially the Western countries, we are so civilized, we are so merciful, but every year millions of babies were killed in their mother's womb. And they call this what? Reproductive rights. 
What it really means is this. We are going to give our girls and women every possibility to lead an immoral lifestyle. Yes, we got all the medication and the technology to stop conception of babies, but just in case, we would like to empower our girls and women to kill their children, to sustain their immoral lifestyle, It is a joy for married couple to have children, for the wife to get pregnant, but for those who are engaged in immorality, the worst nightmare is that after you committed the act, the woman may get pregnant. The man can get away and say goodbye to the girl and the woman. But the women and the girls have to bear the consequences, and now we are saying we must give our girls and women that right, that accessibility to kill their babies. You see the contemporary relevance. But in those days, it was worse. It's one thing to have abortions, it's another thing to offer up your infant children to the idols and burn them in the fire. And God says, because of all this, I will punish them. But friends, that is not the end of the story. Is it? We have the promise, the comfort, starting at verse 37. We want to focus on that. This is God's answer. It's a promise of a blessed and glorious restoration and renewal. Behold, verse 37, God says, I will gather them out of all countries where I've driven them in my anger, in my fury, in my great wrath. We are told there are more than 20 different Hebrew words in the Old Testament to describe God's anger. There's three of them. But listen, I will bring them back to this place. I will cause them to dwell safely. Verse 38, they shall be my people and I'll be their God. It's the covenant promise. Verse 39, Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. Verse 40, And I'll make an everlasting covenant with them, and I'll put my fear in their hearts. Oh my dear friends, Jeremiah may ask God, Will this be so? Can this happen? The Lord, you will make with your people an everlasting covenant and they will fear you from their hearts. They will love to obey your law, no coercion. Is it possible? My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, tonight 
You who are in Christ, you partake of this everlasting covenant, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And you know, you testify from the bottom of your heart, I want to obey God. I want to serve Him. I don't want to serve any idol. I'm God's people. I love the Lord. Is it not true of you? My dear friend, is it not true of you? I know. Many of you can say that. And there's the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Jeremiah. A new work is to be done. The work of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have this burning desire to be holy. For obedience. And God says, verse 41, And I will judge over them to do them good. I will surely plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Verse 42, For thus says the Lord, Just as I brought the, all this great calamity on these people, so that I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. I will surely do it. My dear servant, I will surely do, do it. And verse 44. Men who buy fields for money, side deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, and in Kajamadon, doesn't get it, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountain, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, everywhere, in Judea. Because I will cause their captives to return. This is God's promise. To Jeremiah, it was like a dream. It was so unreal. Will this ever come to pass? Shall we really come back to this land and possess the land? And furthermore, beyond that, will people really fear the Lord like that and obey God so wholeheartedly? Yes, what happened in the long history of Israel? What can we learn tonight? My dear friends, you believe in Christ. We are to take courage. We are saved in hope. And those who believe in Jesus have a blessed and glorious future. There shall be a new heaven and a new earth. Even though at present things do look rather discouraging and depressing, isn't it? You look at just, just Australia, without mentioning other places, this matter called so-called law reform. What is this? It is to gag our mouth. It is to stop us preaching the truth of God, even compromising basic, decent, human morality. Persecution is looming in Australia, of all places. Dr. Norwitz, who is now with the Lord, he has been speaking for more than 20 years. 
It is saying that persecution is coming to Australia and the church will be utterly unprepared for that. He understood long ago that Australian churches and Christianity were so weak that when persecution come, we would be in big trouble and not ready. But friends, beyond the present difficulties and the looming troubles, the best is yet to come. Where do you invest in the future? Where to do the work of the Lord? Where to engage in teaching the Bible, in sharing the gospel, and there shall be fruit to all eternity. We may not see much fruit. We may see our society getting worse. We may be grieved at some of the people who may be nearest to us going astray. The best is yet to be. It's very interesting as we read of missional history. The China Inner Mission in the 19th century, for example, at least in the early days, they won't buy properties. They only rent properties. Because they say, the end is near. The Lord's coming is at hand. So they were only engaged in direct evangelism, sometimes also accompanied by medical work. But the Presbyterians and the Anglicans, at the same time, they bought properties. They founded schools and colleges. They, they were translating the Chinese classics into English, make dictionaries and grammar. And sometimes people didn't understand. They were saying to these missionaries, we sent to the missionaries and they spent years translating this Chinese classic into English. What's the point? Are you wasting your time? And they were saying, no, we want you, Westerner, to understand the Chinese culture so that you can go there in the future. Who will write? Who will write? My dear friends, both will write. Both needed to be done. Somewhere to do this, somewhere to do that. And let me finish off by saying this. You who believe in Jesus, we are God's living demonstrations and illustrations. It is of God's good pleasure to use us to demonstrate the truthfulness of His word and faithfulness. What an awesome and holy calling we are given. Our faith and obedience, like Jeremiah's, are to bear testimony to the world and to our fellow believers alike. The truth of God. Some are called to be Hosea. You know Hosea? Man here will say, no, 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 I don't want to be Hosea. Oh, some Christian men are called to be Hosea. Some are called to be Daniel. Some are called to be Jeremiah. Some are called to be Baruch. And many others are called to be nameless believers. 
you realize in Jeremiah's lifetime, not many believed in him, in his message. But some did. Baruch did. Other people did. And they preserved his writing. And Jeremiah, of God's appointment, wrote the longest book in the Bible. And there were some who believed in him and preserved his prophecy. And in the long haul, they were proved to be right. You believe in Christ? You believe in the Word of God? In the long run, you, are, you will be proved to be right. But don't be afraid of difficulty or opposition or mockings. Some Christians even have to endure stretching. But we are in the right. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that you have invested yourself on us. You have invested your own Son on us. You have entrusted to us the glorious gospel. Now Lord, help us to be obedient. In our daily calling, Whatever it may be, may we be your witnesses. Sometimes in our quiet obedience, in our calm faith, in our refusal to go along with the world, and Lord help us to invest in the kingdom of God that we may put our whole soul and mind and strength into obeying you, trusting you, doing whatever you may want us to do. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.